Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's get this show back on the road, shall we? Hello and welcome to The Real Football Cast. I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, I'll once again be dissecting through all the hot topics in football. As you should know by now, the aim is to separate all the football in a week from the chaff, as on this episode, I look back on the fifth weekend of the Premier League season, it turns out I'm going to be doing this one on my own because Carl's off out on a scouting trip once more and JS has pulled up with a very late injury, so I'm down to the bare bones. But please don't switch off, it will be good, I promise. I best do some social media bits, otherwise I'm going to be talking into the abyss. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at DanTracy1983. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, send them my way and they will get discussed. Twitter is the main place where you can find the show each week and you can also find it at realfootballcast.com. From there, you'll find links to download or stream to your device, and you can also listen via SoundCloud or Audio Boom. And later in the week, we'll be on YouTube, thanks to our sponsors, Loserpool. And what is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's a new betting game that is soon to be launched in the UK. However, it's betting turned on its head, as the focus is picking the loser. If that has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit Loserpool.com and create an account, with now especially being the time to do so, as they have 30% off coupons on their site. Right then, it's time to go live. First up, I go to league leaders Chelsea, who are one of two teams on maximum points. Now you could say that in Elton John fashion, Sari seems to have the hardest team. I apologise, it might be 60 minutes of really bad puns, but we'll have to see where we are. An early shot for them as uh, Sol Bamba scored for um, the Bluebirds at Stamford Bridge, which I guess had the potential to create something of an upset, but... Chelsea's quality shone through in the end, isn't it? I mean, Hazard, again, with a masterful performance. And Chelsea are just sort of ticking, aren't they? They're going under the radar slightly because many people would have felt that, you know, could they have gone on to win the the league title? Obviously, we don't know that yet because we're so early in the campaign. But five matches in, they are playing some football that's very easy on the eye. And Richo Sari must be sort of commended with what he's done with primarily the same group of players, well, I guess in the main, a couple of additions, what with Jorginho and Kovacevic, but, you know, it's the same group of players that meandered to fifth 
under Conte last season. That in itself makes you think, were the Chelsea players last season really giving their all? I know Conte looked like he wasn't giving his all towards the end. But um, yeah, I mean, they've been revolutionised in quick time. And if that sort of continues, obviously they keep chalking up wins as they are. Then they are going to be sort of bona fide title contenders. I guess a big test for the Blues is when they actually have a another meeting against the. Well, they've already beaten Arsenal as a big six club, but if you look at the sort of the elite of the top six, I guess the three and the three. If you're looking at City and Liverpool and Chelsea in the top three in one half, Tottenham, United, Arsenal in the sort of second bracket of that top three, you are sort of going to consider yourself. It's the games where Chelsea meet City and Liverpool, which aren't going to necessarily define the league title, but they are going to have sort of... They're going to give us more of an indication as to when Chelsea actually, or could actually, go on to uh, to win, what would it be, a second league title in three years? They seem to have these weird boom and bust campaigns, don't they? I know me and J- JS referenced this on the, uh, the first week of the season. It's almost that Chelsea fans are prepared to have the, the ultimate highs and the... the the downward sort of spiral that goes with it in between. If you look at when they won the league in 2015 under Jose Mourinho, next season was an absolute whitewash, wasn't it? The club was an absolute shipwreck and it needed Gus Hiddink to come in and steady the ship mid-table. You know, in the end they finished 10th. But, you know, next season they win the league again. And then last season they don't finish in the Champions League. So it's, you know, it's a weird boom and bust cycle. But the way things are panning out, we could be looking at another... Boom, couldn't we? So, you know, it's all all promising for Chelsea. Cardiff, though, they uh, there's never really a game they were going to win. You know, in essence, it was a free hit for them. In terms of loser pull, that was my guaranteed pick off the the week. So I'm off the mark, thankfully. Um, but yeah, I mean, they can take credit for the fact they scored a goal. But Sol Bamba become the hero to then the villain in quick uh, quick time, really. I mean, once they got in front... It was almost a cliche. Did they go in front too early? Perhaps you know, but you can't really use that as an excuse for the way they play. They sort of defended a bit off the ball, really, after getting the noses in front. But um, you know, the positives they can take is obviously getting the goal. But at the same time, you know, they've they played Chelsea and Arsenal in, in two matches outside of the international break. They have scored three goals, but they've conceded a hatful at the same time. So. You do wonder if that sort of underbelly or softness in the back, at the back, sorry, is going to be the, the real issue that sends them down come the end of the season. Also, you could couple that with a lack of goals. But, you know, life goes on for Cardiff. They'll um, have to dust themselves off. There'll be other weeks, there'll be other opportunities to get points. But the longer this sort of goes on in search of a first win, the tough task only continues for Neil Warlock and his men. Liverpool, of course, they're the other team on maximum points after winning at Wembley, a game that I was, uh, I wouldn't say fortunate enough to go to as a Tottenham season ticket holder. But um, it just felt really flat, flat from a point of view where maybe Tottenham fans were thinking, today we should be somewhere else. Obviously, it's meant to be the game that was the, I don't know, the uh, the launch of the, the new stadium for Tottenham. Obviously, that's not the case. We don't know when they're going to move back. You know, anytime soon, is it going to be start of the year, start of next season? The way things are panning out, you're sort of losing confidence each time. Now, Champions League matches are being played at uh, Wembley. It sort of does intimate that it's not going to be before Christmas. So then you're sort of thinking, will a blockbuster fixture be Man United at home is the one that's going to christen it? I don't know, but, you know, that's something that Daniel Levy and the construction companies will have to work out between them, and us fans will eventually get wind of that. But anyway, back to... What happened on Saturday, 
I don't know if it was the Wembley factor. I mean, that in itself is sort of yin and yang. After beating Fulham, it was a case of, oh, brilliant, you know. Wembley's not too bad. We can stay here for a few more weeks and months if it need be. Lose to Liverpool, shocking. You know, I don't want to go back to Wembley. But I guess that's just the national stadium for you in a nutshell, isn't it? It's not a greatest place to go to or visit unless it's a cup final. It just seems a bit of a chore. But that's at least Tottenham have got a ground to play at. You know, we're not homeless. But let's focus on the positives. And those positives are Liverpool. The positive for them is, you know, winning, but also the fact they weren't even in top gear. And that's a scary prospect for not only for Tottenham and the way they play, but I guess for the rest of the Premier League. Because Liverpool didn't really need to turn it on. 2-1, as the scoreline suggests, that it was a close game, but it's anything but really. I know the scoreline does sort of intimate that it's only one goal difference. But if you watch the game over 90 minutes or even the highlights, you could see that Liverpool could and should have had, you know, four on a good day or a better day, it could have been six. You know, it was that kind of day, really. Michel Vaughan called into action far too many times. Defensive woes, you know, passes being strayed left, right and centre. You can only have to sort of look at Liverpool nearly scoring in 90 seconds. It, well, they did find the net, but that um, was chalked off due to offside. But they almost sort of set the tempo, really, for just the day. I mean, Tottenham were just... I don't know if it was the international break coming back from that. A twelve thirty start doesn't help either, but they just they, mine wasn't in it. I mean, the amount of off passes that from the likes of Dembele, Alderweireld, players that you could pin a target on someone's back and they'd hit it every time. Well, not every time. Obviously, Liverpool being evidence of that. But nine times out of ten, or ninety nine times out of a hundred, they'd be actually arrowing passes diagonal from end to end. It just wasn't their day. It wasn't Tottenham's day. Um, Again, you can perhaps point to Harry Kane being unfit. It does beg the question as to, does he need rest? Will Pochettino give him rest? That's a poison chalice in itself because, say, if he's rested against Brighton at the weekend coming up, you sort of think to yourself, OK, that might be an opportunity, but Tottenham not not having won their last two matches, I wouldn't say it's must-win. Nothing's ever really must-win in the sixth week of the season, but Tottenham have to go there and get maximum points. There's no doubt of that. If they were to rest Harry Kane and not deliver three points, then fingers will be pointed at Pochettino, rightfully or wrongfully, as to say, well, why wasn't Harry Kane started? So he's in between a rock and a hard place. Not an enviable position at the moment, but you do get the feeling of Harry Kane that there's something not quite there. And whether that's fatigue from the World Cup, it could even be fatigue from his injury before that, You know when he got the uh, rolled ankle against Bournemouth in March. It could be that. It could be the fact that Tottenham aren't necessarily playing to his strengths. You've now got Lucas Moura, sort of, he's a great addition, but that addition has created almost another headache in the sense that you're now sort of thinking to yourself, okay, where does Moura fit in into this sort of, I guess it's almost a two up front, really. Obviously, he's not really a recognised striker, but he's playing in that sort of free reign, trying to mop up the scraps or even get behind Kane. So Kane's dropping deeper. Because of that, he's only getting. A handful of shots per game. It works out as 12 shots out of five games. So that's 2.4 on average, which is not really enough for someone of his calibre. Obviously, you can sort of point to the fact that he only needs a shot to get a goal. But two goals this season proves that's not necessarily the case. You know, for the 12 shots he's had, he's wasted 10. You know, that's not all necessarily his fault, but it does sort of point to a wider issue. And is it an issue that's going to be resolved soon? The worrying thing is no one really knows the answer. When fitness... You sort of, especially with someone like Harry Kane, he's adamant he wants to play every game that he can. And that's really admirable 
from a, in England and a Tottenham point of view. But however, there does come a point where he will need to be rested because Tottenham, it's very apparent, it's obvious to everyone, you know, they haven't got the squad like the likes of City, like the likes of Liverpool. And then it sort of makes you wonder, are they going to get caught out further down the line when the business end of the campaign comes around and they don't have that rotation, that flexibility? Do you want to put Harry Kane, you know, do you want to make him run through brick walls this early in the season when you need him for later? So maybe there's sort of scope to play Hyunmin Song up top, but then you have to ask yourself, does Hyunmin Song and Lucas Moura fit together? Arguably not. So then, you know, you might have to rejig your side there. So that's a headache that Mauricio Pochettino is going to have to sort of solve. It's one that will not be helped by the fact that Tottenham are playing this midweek. They're playing actually in a few hours' time um, of this recording. So you would imagine there Harry Kane's going to play. Again, that's more minutes, more mileage. An away day there, so travelling back, I don't know. I think the, the logical time for him to be dropped, or not dropped, I think that's a bit of a harsh statement, but for him to be rested, should I say, will be the League Cup, League Cup game against Watford. But we'll have to see how that pans out. It's also Champions League time for Liverpool tonight against PSG. A mouth-watering clash. It's, well, it's actually a mouth-watering evening, really. Whether you really agree with the 6pm kickoff, it's uh, great from a, a fan's perspective if you can get the time off work. I'm lucky enough. I'm lucky enough to be in that camp today because I can uh, record this podcast and finish up by six. There's no issue there, but there is a little bit of an issue, I guess. If you're sort of finishing work at six, you're not going to get to watch the start of the Tottenham Inter Milan game or Inter Tottenham game, should I say? So that's a bit of an annoyance. But unfortunately, as we all know, Champions League is a cash cow. Money talks and money talks in the way of television as well. So we've got Inter versus Tottenham, Liverpool versus PSG, two fantastic ties. The the one, obviously, the, the headline fixture is going to be Liverpool. That's safe at 8 o'clock, so obviously there's a bit of a no-brainer. They're not going to put the headline fixture on early because it's all about TV audience. So, And also, that's why Tottenham play earlier because it's all about English TV companies being able to play one match at 6, one match at 8 without any clashes. So it, I can see why the decision is made, but it also does make you think, is it another step too far in terms of television? But I'm, I'm sure that's a debate that me and JS will have in future weeks. But as for Liverpool PSG, Liverpool, they've only made two changes in their lineups this season. So you sort of get the feeling they're quite settled. The only changes they've sort of making are the Henderson and uh, Naby Keita in midfield. So whether there's going to be rotation tonight after the um, win at Wembley on Saturday, whether Roberto Firmino comes in after his uh, eye in the socket, that was uh, not a pretty sight, was it? I mean, he's probably not got a pretty sight now at the moment. But... Um, there might be scope for rotation there. But uh, PSG, they'll be going into this, not just this game, but this campaign, thinking, you know, is this the year we can finally win the Champions League? Like City, really, aren't they? They're sort of a money club, a money elite club, that for all the league titles and domestic silverware, they're still in pursuit of the big one. So, you know, City will be eyeing up that prize. So will PSG. PSG in the shape of Neymar and Mbappe. Many were thinking about financial fair play and whether they would be able to hang on to those two players. They have. Mbappe also comes into this tournament off winning the World Cup. So he's obviously one of the pinnacle of the game in terms of international football. The focus now is to go to the club game, see if he can replicate that. It probably will be, once again, a step too far for PSG because you always get the feeling that they'll they'll qualify from the group stages as per. But when they meet the first real big test in the knockouts, 
that's when they sort of fall by the wayside. I mean, this is a big test in itself. The test that we'll see who will finish top of the group, which obviously both teams will want. But at the same time, it's almost a case of, look at Tottenham last season. I don't want to keep referring to them, but look at them. They won the group after all their efforts against Real Madrid and got paired with Juventus. So it is the luck of the draw. With that said, neither team's going to be sort of thinking, how can they gain the system? They're going to be wanting to get maximum points, win from the off, get a marker laid down and sort of you know, start off with good momentum because that's what it's all about in the Champions League. With such few matches to to play in the group stages, you haven't really got a 38-game season to think, OK, if we don't get off to the perfect start or an ideal start, should I say, there's still time to win that back and win points back. Six matches, very quick. You know, it can be over in three or four. So Liverpool have got to make sure they nail this one down. They won't be too disappointed Disappointed with a draw, but at home, they will be confident as well. But we'll have to see how that one pans out. If we go back to the Premier League now, and we'll go across Merseyside to the blue half, and Everton, they, um, well, they fell very short at the weekend, actually, as West Ham got off the mark with their first win of the season. A much-needed win, it must be, said, must be said for Manuel Pellegrini's side, as um, obviously no points going into that one, and obviously two really tough fixtures afterwards. So had they not picked up a point at Everton, the logic there would have been, well, actually, you could see them being seven games in defeat here, and that almost might be enough for Pellegrini to get the boot. So not only has talk of Pellegrini being sacked been muted, it also means that um, they can look forward to the game against Chelsea at home, knowing that they could, well, it's going to be a test for them, really, but they managed to get a win against Chelsea last season. Obviously, that was under David Moyes. This time around, it'll be under Pellegrini. So there's not the doom and gloom circling around the stadium that there was going into the international break. They will be confident, but it's going to be a test. But West Ham have this sort of habit, like David Moyes said on um, Sunday, so I'm going to nick his line. But they do have a habit, West Ham, of pulling out a result from nowhere. The results you don't expect then sort of become the expected, don't they? So I'm not saying it's going to be a West Ham win, but you never know, do you? So West Ham-Chelsea on Sunday is going to be an interesting tie. It's got an interesting subplot going into it, what with being a London derby. But the stakes have just been raised for both clubs. In terms of Everton, well, where do you start? I mean, personally, Morgan Schneidel in substitution, I thought was a bit a bit ill-judged, really. Now, I mentioned this on Twitter, and I was guilty of not waiting till half-time for a tweet. Because if you tweet join a match then there's always a habit that you get bit on the arse, which happened to me, because I said that I thought it was a bit of a low move from Marco Silva to sub off Schneidlin with, what, 90 seconds to go before the break. Because you can you could see that he was having a bad game, you know, and there were extenuating circumstances behind that. That's just unfortunate. You know, his dad passed away, but he's, he's a professional when he wanted to play. But you could see that his mind wasn't on the job. So to take him off with nine seconds to go, you think to yourself, what favours or what help is that doing to a player whose confidence and mindset is already fragile? Now, I know Everton scored and everyone, well, people were then saying, well, the ends justify the means. But yes and no, because obviously the deficit was halved. But at the same time, Bernard came on and it wasn't him who set up the goal. He didn't really play any part in it. It was a wide cross from... Kenny, which landed on the head of Sigurdsson. Great cross, great goal. But, you know, it's, it's hard to say that, well, it wasn't a, te- a tactical masterstroke for Marco Silva. So, 
a bit off there, really. Just like Everton, their defence. When you're looking at you know Mason Holgate and Kurt Zuma, that's the sort of your backup pairing, if you will. Neither of them really exuded any confidence. Yarmolenko and Arnautovic had a lot of joy throughout the game, as is evident in the three goals that they scored between them. Yarmolenko, with his first two goals for the club, I mean, he looked interesting. You sort of thought to yourself that they've got a good player here, and it might be the sort of setup where this kind of suits West Ham now. It's The cogs are slightly sort of turning. Got Philippe Anderson on one wide forward, Yarmolenko another who likes to cut in, as we saw with Everton's uh, second goal that they conceded. And Arnautovic, who's sort of playing as a forward, has been almost reinvented as a forward since David Moyes had that sort of tactical switch last season. So, you know, interesting times West Ham, but we've covered them enough. I don't want to dwell on the, that match too much. We'll move forward and we'll go to Newcastle. It's not been a great start for the Magpies. Just one point from a possible 15. But at the same time, they've had some incredibly tough fixtures, haven't they? I mean, Tottenham, Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester City... Four matches, four defeats, all four, funnily enough, have led to 2-1 losses. So you sort of think to yourself that, I guess there's a small glimmer of hope. One that they can sort of then think to themselves, when we come across somewhat lesser opposition in the league, then there might be then chances to get points on the board. But, you know, it's been a, a tough start. The fixed computer's not been kind to them, so they will go into a period where they will look at points to be won. But, um, again, there's no momentum at the moment. There's almost... Lack of ideas. It's it's playing football to stifle the opposition, which is a Benitez trait, and that's his right. You know, obviously, if he feels he's if he goes toe to toe with a, a top tier club such as the one that I mentioned, it could be sort of you know suicidal almost. So he's playing his teams to set themselves up with damage limitation in mind. But then, you'd, as a Newcastle fan, you would like to think to yourself, okay, if we were just a little less pragmatic and just offered a bit more than you never know, do you? I guess that's the sort of the worry, isn't it? It's You're looking at a game with your glass either half empty or half full. It's probably three quarters empty in Newcastle's perception, really, because they're sort of thinking, oh, we're not going to get much out of this, so let's try and get a point. It's easy to be reckless when I'm not the manager, and I guess hindsight's also a wonderful thing, but they'll hope that the, uh, the tide turns quickly. For Arsenal, the tide has turned, you must say, because... After two defeats, they they are now three matches unbeaten in the league. And they are on the same points as uh, Tottenham with nine. So they'll be sort of confident that their season's kick-started, which you always got the feeling was going to be the case. Once they got Chelsea and City out of the way in those first two matches, that was then when the season started. It was a, a tough pair of matches to be given. So you sort of thought, OK, any point they could get from those two would be a bonus. So, you know, again, though, with the, the cutthroat nature of the Premier League, people were going, oh, perhaps Unai Emery's the wrong man to be appointed for the job. And it's an awfully early time to make statements like that. Even after five matches, we don't really know if it's the right answer. Those kind of answers will only really be um, sort of worked out once and for all come the end of the season. Should Arsenal get into the top four? Should they win um, the Europa League? Those are the kind of real absolute answers we can get from that. But, again, they've got a bit of a... Def- Defensive deficiency, you'd have to say. But at the same time, they seem to be confident in the fact that no matter what they concede, they'll just go and score one more. So, obviously, that didn't work out for them against Chelsea, as they were on the uh, the other end of that, that logic. And City, they didn't score at all. But the three wins since, they've gone behind to 
Uh, West Ham, they struggled against Cardiff. Um, it was a very topsy-turvy game, but they got through in the end again through, I guess, attacking brute force more than anything else. But they'll be confident now that the uh, momentum is, you know, not just turning, it's it's in full steam. So they'll look to continue that as they uh, go into the weekend tie against Everton. Everton obviously coming off the loss we've just mentioned. So with a home fixture there for the Gooners, they'll they'll be confident they can make it four wins in four. And then all of a sudden you're sort of, depending on what Tottenham do at Brighton, it could already be sort of a, an advantage for the, the red half of North London. So we'll see how that one pans out. If we go now to uh, to Huddersfield and uh, Wilfred Sahar, I mean, it wasn't really a, a great game um, for Palace in terms of the uh, a spectacle, but they got the points and that's all that really matters for them. But Sahar, rightly or wrongly, is um, is having a moan about the uh, protection or lack of that he's getting from referees. Now, you'd have to sort of say that he's becoming a malt man. Whether that's because he has a reputation, whether that's because referees aren't prepared to protect him, and, you know, because of that reputation, I don't know. Alan Shearer said on Match Today that perhaps he has to take it as a compliment that because he is such a marked man and he's talent, that the only way to stop him is to kick him, which, you know, perhaps 20, 30 years ago would have been the answer, but it's not the kind of game of football that he's, he's played in this day and age. I guess someone like Lionel Messi is the same kind of a has the same kind of approach, isn't he? That unfortunately he has some robust tackles go his way during the game, but that's the only way you can stop him when he's in a Barcelona shirt. Perhaps not in an Argentina shirt. He's not um, quite that good, is he? But you know, Barcelona and Palace have the same colour shirts, and that's probably where the, uh, the similarities end. But uh, Sahar, I think he's got every right to to have a moan. I think, and also it's the case of the squeaky wheel gets the oil, isn't it? Because if you don't moan. You never really sort of highlight these issues. So the conspiracy theorists would then say that you watch Sahar now, he'll get a penalty come the, um, come the weekend or the player who makes a tackle gets sent off because that's the way sort of football seems to work, doesn't it? You know, you make a, a comment or it doesn't even need to be a subliminal one, but say something the week before and all of a sudden life ever takes out the week after. So there could, you know, whether that happens or not, I don't know. But I think he's got every right to, to voice his... Uh, Complaints. You only have to look at the game against Watford when he got raped down the back of his calf. That really, by right, should have been a red card. But the tactic for Watford there was get Sahar sent off because there's obviously some uh, long-running bad blood between the two teams. So, you know, Sahar did well not to rise to it, but he was very... Well, I guess he did take the bite a bit because he obviously um, was perturbed about the tackle he had to uh, to fill there. And, well, as many of them. But, you know, he didn't get sent off, so Watford's plan didn't really work. But you do do also run the risk as a Palace fan of worrying will he get sent off because he got booked on um, Saturday against Huddersfield more out of frustration than anything else because after taking a, a robust tackle minutes before he then sort of dished out a bit of a revenge himself but as a footballer you can't really do that either because if you go in hot-headed something might go unpunished minutes before you go in all guns blazing and it's you just going to get the red card so he needs to keep a keep keep a clean Head really, keep a calm head because it's only going to be Palace that are the losers really. So he has to be careful, but we'll see how that one pans out. Southampton versus Brighton took place on Monday night. An interesting encounter. Southampton will look at that one and think, oh, that's two points dropped, isn't it? Because, you know, 2 0 in the second half, coasting really. Uh, great finish by Huyberg, um for the break. An absolute rocket, wasn't it? You know, he seems to have got the taste for goals all of a sudden after scoring before the international break. 
But a great finish from him. And then Danny Ings with a penalty. Uh, the right call after being um, brought down in the box by Gaytan Bong. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, no no wrong decision there from Anthony Taylor. He pointed to the spot. Southampton doubled their advantage thanks to Ings. And it's 2-0. And from there, you really should have... Well, you would have thought that Southampton would have seen the game out. But credit to Brighton as... Not only did they turn back the two-goal deficit that they did against Fulham, they did it last night against Southampton. So it shows there's resilience in their team and they're picking up points because, especially away from home, Fulham, they probably would have had a shout of winning that one, especially after missing a penalty. But, um, you know, points on the road, especially for a club of their potential Premier League position coming into the season, it's going to be vital because your home form is obviously a big boost, but it's what you can do on the on the road as well, which could make or break your season. So, Brighton will, they'll be pleased with the point. Chris Shooting will have, I don't know, he'll have reasons to, to moan, it's only about the first 45 minutes, because they didn't really look at it. I think Glenn Murray looked a bit too isolated at times. But, a tactical switch, a bit of um, nuance here and there, and they looked better. They certainly did, as the point was a reference of that. So, they'll be confident going into Saturday's clash against Tottenham. You know, they've already claimed one big scout this season against Man United. This is a Tottenham team which is, uh, will you say, down their luck? I don't know. I mean, for Tottenham, it's a small crisis in that they've lost two matches in the Premier League. The first time that's happened since 2016, 2015-16 season. So Brighton will be confident of causing more trouble. Don't forget also that last season, the two teams played out a 1-1 draw at the Amex, so there is, you know, there's a reference point for Brighton to look at there. If they can sort of do the same same job, they'll be confident of getting more points at home in front of their own fans. Something that Wolves did also at the weekend, they beat Burnley, which was uh, JS's loser-pull pick. So he's uh, on the perfect run of two for two. And, um, yeah, what can you say about Wolves? I mean, they were sensational, really, and I don't think the scoreline... Tells the story. 1-0 was the scoreline, thanks to a Raul Jimenez goal on the hour. One that was uh, enough to win all three points. But 29 efforts on goal on Sunday. A phenomenal amount, really. Whether that says Burnley were lacklustre, I mean, they certainly were. Or whether Wolves were scintillating. Probably a bit of both. Maybe even just the latter, actually. Because Wolves, they're, just, they're really easy on the eye. The way they're playing football. They will be a test for so many clubs this season. You know, we've already seen it against Manchester City. I don't think it'll be the first or the last big six team that will uh, drop points there or certainly have trouble there. I mean, you might see a team play badly and come out come out unscathed. But, I mean, Wolves, they're going to be a real handful. They keep playing like this. You're looking at a top 10 finish, really. Burnley, they've got Joe Hart to thank, really, for keeping it respectable because his goal took an absolute battering in the first half. It, it, by then, it could have been three or four. It could have been game over already. So... So going at half-time would have given the Clarets at least some confidence. But they just look really flat, don't they? I mean, we've spoken on this podcast about the fact that the Europa League was almost a bit of a burden for them, wasn't it? That it was almost too much for a squad of their size, considering that they only signed three players in the summer. One of those was a goalkeeper, and that was almost out of necessity due to the injuries of Nick Pope and Tom Heaton. So you've got Joe Hart coming in to fill that gap. And then the only two additions were um, Ben Gibson at the back and uh, Matej Vidra. So, you know, you're sort of adding to your ranks at um, both ends of the pitch, but it's not 
it's not enough, really. I mean, especially for a squad of their size, all that football early on, the Europa League's behind them, so you would have thought, right, OK, now the season starts, but it hasn't, has it? And now they're bottom of the table, one point from 15. Now it's them in Newcastle, one from 15, so they've got a lot of work to do, and the work has to be done quickly. Um, is it second season syndrome? I don't know, probably not, is it? Because I think it's the third season, so it shows how much I know about football, but... Um, whether it's delayed symptoms, good cover up there. But um, yeah, something's not quite right with Sean Dyche's side at the moment. Um, it's defence, really, because last season defence was the bedrock, really, wasn't it? I mean, they were gritting out results. They weren't pretty, but a lot of 1-0s and, more importantly, clean sheets when it mattered. The only clean sheet they've had this season was the opening weekend against Southampton. So that's the only point that they've also scored. So, you know... the Ironically, the only game they don't concede is their only points. So the games, you know, um, the other games, they're not more often not scoring and still losing. Obviously, that wasn't the case on Sunday due to their uh, 1-0 defeat at Wolves. But I don't know. They're just they're looking like they're lacking ideas. Maybe they've been found out to a certain degree. I don't know. But they need to start getting points on the ball quickly. There's still time for it to turn around, obviously. But the longer it happens, the longer this position gets entrenched, the more and more... It will struggle. And as also we've referenced, you have to look at the fact that Wolves are a promoted team and they're getting the better of the likes of Burnley. And it makes Burnley's job sort of harder to stay up, doesn't it? Because if you've got Wolves and maybe even Fulham to a certain degree, if they're sort of looking confident staying up themselves in two sort of, I don't know, more recognised Premier League teams are going to be in the mire and it could well be Burnley. But... Again, so many weeks and months yet to come, so it's too early to be writing them off just yet. We'll have to see how the next few fixtures pan out. I think, really, I think as a general rule, fixtures 9 and 10 will really start to sort of shape the Premier League table. And from there, we can start plotting who's really in trouble and who's got um, things to celebrate. Fulham had little to celebrate at the weekend as they were well beaten by Manchester City. Carl, on the other hand, will be celebrating as he got his loser pool pick correct last week. That also means that it was a clean sweep for the pundits. As I went for Cardiff, JS went for Burnley, and as I've just said, Carl went for Fulham, so we're all off the mark. More on that later, but um, back to the game. It was almost over, well, it was over, really, within 90 seconds, wasn't it? Leroy Sane back in the fold after being left out in the opening weeks of the season, off the mark, open the scoring for City, and after that, really, I mean, Fulham were just chasing shadows. It was always going to be a tough day for the Cottagers, but they made it tough for themselves, really, didn't they? I mean, giving away... Possession cheaply leading to the goal just makes a, t- a tough task almost impossible as it showed. As then City went up through the gears and made it 2 and 3 0. So, I guess a routine win for City. Two points off the top, you know, again, no, nothing's going to be decided after five weeks of the season. But it's, I don't know, it's weird in a sense that no one's really talking about City as much this season, are they? The focus seems to be on Liverpool and Chelsea, rightly so. Maybe that's because they are the top two, but it's almost whether City, I don't know, are they putting their eggs in the Champions League basket? I know I referenced earlier that they are still looking to secure that prize. It's all, you know, domestic dominance is great and all that, but that's not where the uh, the club's owners are going to stop. They're not really pumped all this money in for, to win a Carabao Cup, have they? So, at the same time, you have to sort of take into account that we've also referenced on this many times that it's, it's hard to win the Premier League. It's even harder to defend it, and no team's done that since 2009 when Manchester United won their third 
of uh, three in a row. But since then, you know, it's been um, alternates since. So you you could almost sort of get the feeling that City might be sort of focused. Well, I don't know. It's hard to sort of say, really. But let's just say they won't be too displeased, obviously, if they just won the Champions League and didn't win the Premier League. Because you got the feeling that this is like the next evolution. Because if they win the Premier League again and fall short in Europe, it's almost as if that's what they're expected to do. And everyone will go, oh, great, you know, they've got the most money, what did you expect? If they win the Champions League, people will say, well, actually, you know, now City have rightfully joined Europe's elite. They're now at the top table. Pep Guardiola's team have truly come of age on a global sort of standing. And that sort of would crown, or perhaps be the genesis of City's real era of... um, European dominance but we'll have to see how that pans out but yeah because Guardiola himself was saying that oh you know he was sort of lambasting the Premier League that it's if to say you know he's won it already and now it's not quite the league it's all cracked up to be which you know it's, it's damning praise really but I guess he's sort of a case of been there done that got the t-shirt I want to win the Champions League again because he didn't do it with Bayern obviously he was incredibly successful with Barcelona with uh, titles in 2009 and 2011 but that's now eight years without a um, without a Champions League so for someone of his managerial stature you do think to yourself it is his time really I know Real Madrid have been uh, having a near monopoly on all things Champions League since uh, 2014 well Spanish clubs since then Barcelona breaking up in 2015 but you know maybe it is time for the Premier League to win the trophy once more because you have to go back to 2012 for uh, for Chelsea to win the the trophy after that magical night in Munich. Not so much if you're a Spurs fan because it got booted out the, uh, the tournament for the following season. But I digress. Um, and then 2013 Bayern Munich went one better than their defeat the year before as they beat Borussia Dortmund in the All German Wembley final. So since then it's been Spain all the way, and you get the feeling, or you hope there's at least a feeling that. It's time for England to sort of pull up the ranks again because winning continental trophies is cyclical in a in a sense, but the pattern has been Spain so much as of late. You've only got to look at Sevilla's running the Europa League, Atletico Madrid are picking up trophies left, right, and centre, aren't they, in Europe as well? So it's not going to be easy, but for a team or a league, sorry, that prides itself on being quote unquote the best league in the world. It's fallen short by the wayside when it really matters. And maybe that is it. Maybe it is the best league in the world, in the sense that on any given day, anyone can beat anyone. But is that something that then stops it from helping you win the Champions League? Because if you're a team such as Chelsea, Manchester City, Liverpool, Tottenham, um, you've got to play big games every week, haven't you? There's no off week. You know, I've just sort of referenced it. Harry Kane could be rested against Brighton, but chances are he probably won't because Tottenham have to win. Therefore, you know, they don't have the luxury of resting and rotating at will like the likes of Barcelona or Bayern Munich do. Barcelona, if they play Ibar at home, you know, they can chop and change three or four names knowing that they've got a big Champions League game around the corner and more often than not, they don't get punished for it. You know, it's business as usual. Same with Bayern Munich. If they've got Werder Bremen or, you know, Stuttgart or something like that, or Fortuna Dusseldorf, then 
make wholesale changes and still be uh, cruising to victory. So those major European leagues that aren't the Premier League have the flexibility when it really matters to to chop and change. I mean, I guess the Premier League have tried to identify this with the introduction of Friday night football. That might give you an extra buffer, but you know, at the same time, it's not really the, the scheduling of the fixtures, it's just the the strength of the competition itself, isn't it? But again, that's an age-old argument. Do you want the money and the pursuit of the Premier League and the, the kudos that comes with that? Is that something that comes at the cost of winning the Champions League? You'd have to think so, especially after the drought that the teams have had since 2012. So, you know, I might be wrong. It might all change come this season. But, you know, if could a team like Tottenham go all the way in the Champions League? They might look at it and think, if the Premier League's not going to happen... They might put all their eggs in the European basket. But again, these are sort of more questions you ask or answer come sort of March, April, because then you have to sort of look at the lie of the land. Look at Arsenal last season, for example. It was clearly apparent that in the last few weeks of the season, Arsene Wenger was thinking to himself, "Okay, we're not really going to finish in the top four, but the Europa League does offer an excellent prize. It offers the same prize, in essence. So let's just go all out for for that competition. And it's a plan that got into the semi-finals, they beat AC Milan in the quarterfinals, but they fell short against the eventual winners at Atletico Madrid. So there is a smart logic in doing that. But again, you have to sort of weigh up the uh, the competitions you're in, the positions that you are currently in the league. I mean, look at Tottenham back in 2000 and 2016 when they were doing their very best to catch down Leicester in the Premier League. That season saw them in the Europa League quarterfinals and they faced Borussia Dortmund. And it's fair to say that season that Pochettino sort of threw the games away, really, which is a bit frustrating because, again, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but that would have been almost the ideal opportunity to win silverware, like something really achievable because, obviously, Dortmund out outfoxed us over two legs, over 180 minutes, but at the same time, if Tottenham were full strength and it was a fair fight, then it would have been, or could have been, something completely different, and then that could have led to a trophy. But at the same time, those extra games would have had a large impact on Tottenham's race for the title, which in itself imploded. So again, this is hindsight being wonderful because after going out the Europa League, the last few weeks it all fell apart anyway, didn't it? So, um, you know, that's football for you. Focusing now on Bournemouth, they are having a flying start to the Premier League season, aren't they? A result which, I guess, was something of a surprise on Saturday. Not in the sense that they won, but, I mean, they made incredibly light work of Leicester. I know the scoreline doesn't suggest that, but after going 4-0 up, they sort of took their foot off the pedal somewhat, Bournemouth, which I guess they deserve to do after being in that comfortable position. Eddie Howe will probably have a small go at the players because, you know, why not be professional, why not see the game out, giving up the opportunity of a clean sheet and all that. But at the same time, um, they're looking a really good side and they've not made too many... Changes, but I think Bournemouth's always been a case of um, evolution rather than revolution, isn't it? It's about making subtle changes that are going to enhance the squad. Something that you'd almost wish that Tottenham had done. I've got, I've got to stop referring to Tottenham, but it's, everything always comes back to that. But with Bournemouth, they've not they've not blown the uh, the bank. They don't really need to. They probably don't have the money to in, in the sort of scale of even teams like uh, Wolves and Fulham. You know, spending a hundred million pounds is not something that Bournemouth are going to do. But the money they have spent, they've spent wisely. And even those players that have been bought are still not really 
fixtures in the first team themselves. They're going to be sort of drip-fed into the team. So, by and large, it's pretty much the same team that you saw over the last ooh, even sort of three seasons, really. They're making a really sort of good fist of it. Whether this can continue in the long term over the course of the next eight months or so, probably not. But they're at a point now where they are an established Premier League club. You know, they're not... They've never been relegated, so they can't have the mantle of a yo-yo club. So that doesn't really work. And bit by bit, you can see the progress being made. For a team that has a capacity stadium of what? I don't know. Let's say 12,000 off the top of my head. I've been there. It's a, a shoebox in comparison to modern-day stadiums. Another few years, and you'd imagine that they will finally move because they'll have to, really. They've almost outgrown the, outgrown the place because if you consider that this is a, a team that a decade or so goes in League Two, and the rise up the leagues has been phenomenal. But it's been truly deserved as well. I mean, rivals of Bournemouth in the Championship when they're in that level would criticise them for having a Russian benefactor, you know, sugar daddy, and they played them way, brought their way to the title and all that, which perhaps has a small, or you know, there is an element of truth into that. But I think that does Eddie Howe and his players a disservice. So, you know, for them, it's about keeping this momentum going. And for them, what is momentum? You sort of think to yourself that perhaps, can they have a proper run in the, the Cups? Because to be fair to them, or maybe unfair to them, they do have a tendency to focus everything on the Premier League, which again is their right, especially with the amount of money that's involved in the competition. But it must be a little bit frustrating if you're a Cherries fan, that you sort of, you're in the top flight and you're in these these sort of Premier competitions, you know, you're in them anyway, but you're in further down the line because of your higher league status and you think to yourself, well, you know, we're closer to Wembley and why not give it a go? But again, it's all eggs in the basket. Does that come to the detriment of a league campaign? I mean, even look at Burnley. I know it's not quite the same scenario. Well, actually, maybe it is the same sort of scenario, but they're in, they're in the Europa League and they almost couldn't wait to get out of it. You know, the sort of change they made, it was like, well, if we can get to the group stage, great, but we kind of try and meddle our way through. So, it does sort of come back to the point where the Premier League is the be-all and end-all. And that's the kind of thing that sort of belittles the Cups, which is a scenario which is never really going to be be solved due to simply the amount of money involved um, in the Premier League versus the likes of the uh, FA Cup and the Carabao Cup. I mean, unless or until, which is something that's never going to happen, unless the prize money gets to a much closer level, which considering you're paying or playing what one-sixth of the games at most, you know, six matches, five matches, you're not going to get the same kind of parity in terms of prize money. But there is perhaps scope to make it a bit bigger in terms of the, the prize pot. I mean, it's getting that way, but the FA is not going to be bending over backwards. And you can already tell the fact that they are, I wouldn't say, well, diminishing the FA Cup more and more, really, aren't they? Because we're losing replays, it's being further and further eroded, and it's almost at the behest of big clubs to make sure that they have a proper crack at the competition. So, you know, that's a topic that will rear its ugly head once more come the uh, turn of the year, I imagine, when we get to January, because that's when the third round takes place, you know, a, a staple day in the football and calendar each year, but one that most Premier League teams outside the top six would almost like to uh, not really bother with. And if they, if they sort of crash out of it, then it's whisper it quietly and back to the league campaign the following day. OK, now it's time for our loser pool picks of the week. Myself, Carl and JS, we're not going to be playing for money. We're going to be playing for points over the course of the season. So what I've done is create something of a league concept. What happens here is that we get a base level of 10 points. A correct result is a win. So as in real football, you get three points for that. 
anything but, and you get deducted two points. But that deduction is sort of like a fine, like in the real game itself, and that allows us to pick again. So we get a refresh pick, but it's going to cost us. So looking at the league table after two rounds of picks, JS is flying away on 16 points. So that's 10 base level points and the two correct picks. While myself and Carl are on 11 after getting week one wrong. But we're, uh, we've turned the tide this week and hopefully that momentum can continue. So with Carl and JS not being on the other side of the podcast this week, they've been kind enough to send in their picks. And I'm going to go to Anfield first where Carl has been uh, kind enough to offer up Southampton in defeat. And I can see why he's gone for that. I mean, well, it's almost a no-brainer, really. A, he's got that as a free pick um, from his pool of teams he can select. And obviously, um, Liverpool are unbeaten. And they're on a maximum 100% record at the moment. So, Mark Hughes' men, like I said earlier, they're going to be kicking themselves that they didn't get all three points against Brighton. That said, even if they did, it makes the task no easier going to Anfield. I mean, Liverpool have made light work of just about everyone. Like I said earlier, they've not even well, they didn't get into top gear at the weekend against Tottenham, and you get the feeling it's going to be full reds ahead as they go on to get a six straight victory. A, don't forget a draw would see Cole get a wrong result, so he'll be wanting Southampton to lose, obviously, and I think they will. So uh, that could and should be six out of six for Liverpool, and that should also be Cole's second straight correct pick. Coming up next is JS, who's gone for Huddersfield, away at Leicester. So, another team away from home. Um, a smart choice in the match that Huddersfield, they just don't have really any goals in, do they? They just look, they look like they are going through second season syndrome. I know I mentioned Burnley earlier, but I've got my years um, out of date. But, um, yeah, Huddersfield look like they are going to struggle for a multitude of reasons, really. Um, I don't know, you could pick at the fact that, you know, second season syndrome being one of them. Not enough goals. Just not enough like, flair, really. They're just, I don't know. Um, I don't think they bought that well over the summer. They're all sort of speculative punchery, aren't they? But, you know, I guess if you're a Huddersfield fan, you'll be absolutely delighted that you're in the Premier League for a second season. You won't be too despondent if it comes to an end come May um, either. But Leicester, I know that they um, were heavily beaten in terms of performance uh, last Saturday, obviously the two-goal deficit at the end made it more respectable. But um, they've also got the returning Jamie Vardy to uh, come back from suspension. That will fire them up. Uh, but, you know, going forward, Leicester look fine. It's their defence which is their, the problem. They're, just, they're looking old, aren't they? Looking aged. Wes Morgan will be suspended. So whether that helps them slightly with slightly fresher legs... But, um, yeah, just, they look like, if anyone's got sort of pace to to take them on, um, they may struggle. But I don't think Huddersfield are that team. So I think that um, JS has made a very good pick there. And that could be, like Liverpool, a perfect run for him. And I get the feeling that could be three for three for uh, for JS. And obviously, feel free to take on these tips as well if you like the sound of um what we're saying, especially if JS keeps getting these right, it'd be uh, smart to put some money on them yourselves. But I'm going to go with um, Everton to lose. They've got Arsenal on Sunday. Um, Everton were below par at Goodison Park on, uh, on Sunday against uh, West Ham in front of their own fans, which is a concern. Um, they just they weren't really at it, where they weren't at the races. Whereas Arsenal are at the races. They're galloping now after their um, slow start to the campaign. 
at home where they seem to you know say their best performances all, all signs point to four wins for four for Unai Emery's men taking them on to 12 points for the season a win for me would take me on to uh, 14 points and uh, trying to reduce the gap on JS but I think if results go his way he'll be flying so yeah I think Everton you know I don't know Marcus Silva people call him a bit of a snake oil salesman which is perhaps a bit unfair but is he someone who just talks a good game um, and has he I don't know is he being sort of found out he got off to a good start but it didn't work against West Ham he's going to have to find the uh, the recipe or the uh, the magic elixir to get the better of the gunners because they are going to struggle if uh, it all clicks for Arsenal, but maybe they can find Arsenal's defensive plight once again. So we'll see how that one pans out. But I'm confident, and it pains me to say, even as a Tottenham fan, that Arsenal will go on and win that one. So just to reiterate our picks, Cole has gone for Southampton away at Liverpool. JS has gone for Huddersfield away at Leicester. And I have gone for Everton away at Arsenal. So an away clean sweep of are hopefully guaranteed losers. And that are our loserable picks of the week. OK, time for the first uh, women's football segment of the season. Now, I don't do these often or at all, but I feel I have to after this one. Now, I'm not a misogynist. I just want to get that clear. Um, if there are any female listeners out there, I do apologise. But this has to be said. Now, women's football, I'm not got an issue with that. That's not really the uh, the point of this comment. But Benfica's women's team have just started up a, a new side. The Portuguese FA not really had the nouns to think, OK, do you know what? With team of Benfica's stature, perhaps it's probably best if we put you in the top league. You know, you can sort of at least play comparable teams to the, uh, the size of your club. Oh, no, absolutely not. We're going to put you in the Portuguese second division, which I imagine is not a great talent pool. Because if you look at women's football, um, Portugal's not really a name synonymous with women's football, is it? You know, usually it's America, uh, China, England, Germany. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Not really Portugal. They haven't really got a Cristina Ronaldo, have they? Sorry, but um, yeah, Benfica. Okay, they've thrown into the Portuguese second division. Their opening game, they win a comfortable twenty-eight nil. And you're just thinking, Jesus, like, what is the point? Like, what is the point for them as a club? What is the point for the competition? What is the point uh, for the opposition? It's just going to be absolutely demoralised. No doubt, Benfica have got a professional lineup. These Portuguese um, team that they played, I apologise, I don't have the name. I've not done that much research, but um, you know, they're going to be—they're not professionals. It'll just be a part-time gig, and they've got absolutely trounced. So, you know, in hindsight, they probably would have been better putting in the top league, something that will be no doubt rectified by themselves next season as they'll gallop to promotion. Um, at the same time, though, staying on women's football, a similar thing happened the other week, didn't it, with Manchester United's women's team? So the might of um, Big business or big clubs is certainly evident because they won 12 0 against Aston Villa, not the men's team, although that would have been not too unsurprising either the way Villa are playing this season. But um, it, it almost sort of makes you think that is women's football going the same way as men's football in the fact that it's great that there's money getting into the game um, because it's a long time coming and the momentum in women's football is ever expanding, it's ever growing, and that's good to see. But it's almost life imitating art in the sense that the big men's clubs now feel they have to have a women's division, which is, you know, absolutely their right to do so. And this is something that Man United got pulled up on quite a lot in the past because they didn't actually have a women's team. So they've seen the uh, the error of their ways, as it were, and have now um, developed one. But again, United don't do things by half, do they? Um, 
except perhaps pointing managers after Alex Ferguson. But um, yeah, I mean, if they're going to do a women's team, they're going to do it absolutely to the best of their ability. So from the start, it's all professional. They're in the championship, which is uh, England's second tier, as in the men's game. But the women's setup is slightly different. So you have to apply for a license. So there's no natural promotion and relegation. So that in itself begs questions of why not put Man United in the the top tier. But I guess there's a sense that they need to prove themselves. Um, but they certainly have done that. Um, I guess also at the same time, if they parachuted straight into the, the top league, the Women's Super League, that will put at least a, a club or two's noses out of joints because some would have to make way. So there's an element of fairness in it. But at the same time, there needs to be an element of pragmatism because you know if they're rolling over a team like Aston Villa... Who I guess they're not professional, but they're probably you know they're an established women's team. Let, let's be honest, twelve nil. I mean, where's what does that say for the rest of the season? It says that eventually they'll be in the top flight as well. So I guess that's something the women's football will have to get their head around. Um, but I guess it's all it's because it's like an ever changing landscape. It's almost like um, rugby league, isn't it? It's, it's always trying to find its feet and reinvent itself because they they don't quite know what the best format is. Same with rugby union. I think it's almost. Always trying to find an identity which fits in alongside football or tries to compete with football. And I think sometimes you need to think, don't compete with it, find your own identity and stop sort of rejigging or trying to reinvent the wheel every couple of years. That's probably the only women's football segment you're going to get this season, unless there's another ludicrous story like that in the uh, offing sometime soon. But um, I'm probably going to wrap it up there because my voice is getting a bit hoarse and you're probably getting sick of the sound of just me. But if you've got this far, I really appreciate you listening to me because it's been a bit of a... A slog doing this one, but quite challenging at the same time. Interesting, life-affirming, if you will. But um, just time to do a bit of admin. As always, like I said earlier, if you want to tweet me with any questions or comments, you can, at DanTracy1983. Feedback is always welcome. Um, big thanks to everyone who um, got involved with my Football Things in the Bin tweet the other day. An absolutely astonishing response. The best tweet I've ever done in terms of response. About 5,000 likes, so absolutely mind-blowing, and nearly 1,000-odd comments. So what I'm thinking of doing, come the international break, or you know, throughout the season, maybe mix it up, is some, um, some special episodes where we just moan about things we hate in football. Because that's probably the way it's going, isn't it? People love analysis, but they love moaning more. So there'll be scope for that, don't worry. Um, probably, like I say, in the international break, because that's the, a natural fit, and it also gives me an excuse to get bang out some more content so uh, look forward to that and with that said my name's dan tracy this is the real football cast in association with loser paul and until next time goodbye Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.